look at our text today. Father God, we thank you. That you are consistently who you are. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, Lord, that before the foundation of the world, Lord, you had a plan to have a bride for yourself. And knowing that, that bride would be made by you without your divine qualities, without your divine nature, and therefore able to sin, prone to sin, liable to sin, and destined to sin, even before the foundation of the world, you made a plan to deal with that sin, to break the power of that sin, to destroy that sin, in such a way that relationship with you, relationship between you and your bride would never be hindered again. We recognize that what we look at today was not an afterthought or an accident, but it was according to your sovereign will and purpose. May our hearts be humbled, Lord. May we, just for a moment in time, actually consider and meditate on the extent that you went to to bring us into your love. We thank you, Father, for purpose in this. We thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our hearts and eyes to the Savior. And this is what we pray today. Have your way among us, Lord. Help us. In your name and for your glory. Amen. Um, so if you have a Bible, if you'd like to turn with me, John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine 
stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, as we've been going through the book of John, we've been seeing John clearly endeavoring to give us the picture of Christ, the Son of God, that we might believe and in believing have life. And so everything that he has communicated is with that motivation and purpose in mind. And we can be confident of that because he said so himself in chapter 20, that that was his purpose for writing this gospel. And so as we look here, we see an account of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. This account is said to have been written after the other accounts that we have in our Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record the crucifixion of Christ. And yet there were things that John specifically chose to highlight or focus on that he felt was necessary to complement what had already been communicated about Christ's suffering. As we've seen in previous chapters, chapter 18, Jesus is arrested. And from the very point of his arrest, we see that he didn't go as a victim. He didn't go as one who was set upon and overpowered and as one who was fighting, trying to resist what was coming. Jesus was in complete control. We heard that from Mark as he shared and Brent and Brother Bertram. Jesus was in complete control of the situation. Jesus walked into this situation knowing exactly that he would face this outcome. He would face crucifixion. He gave himself over to his death. In chapter 10, he said, No one takes my life, but I lay it down. Now, that's a bold statement for one who is facing the Jewish temple police, 600 Roman soldiers. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. You would kind of sit back and think, but Jesus, you kind of look like you were heavily outnumbered out there. How can you say that it was your choice and not theirs? And yet the reality of this is demonstrated when they come to him and he says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And they all fall down. All 600 plus of them. Without one sword being raised. Without one fist being thrown. Just at the power of his word. Jesus gave himself over. As he stands there before Pilate. Having been before the Jewish authorities in a kangaroo court. I mean, if there were ever an injustice, who was it? There was a song um, by a guy, just Lamar, British soul singer. Whatever happened to Lamar, man? He was all right, you know. <laughs> I remember he had this big song. Do you remember this big song that he had? If there's any justice in this world. <laughs> I don't remember the rest. I'm terrible remembering it, but I just remember that if there's any justice in this world. Jesus faced the greatest of injustices. Within 24 hours, he had been through three trials, completely and utterly illegal, and has now found himself to be crucified. Within the space of 24 hours. Now, in our own life and times, we've been um, confronted 
with social and even legal injustice. We hear stories of people being wrongfully arrested, people being brutalized under such circumstances, and even dying. Both here and abroad. And it's such that it has caused there to be a real paradigm shift in our culture today as people wrestle with this tension of corrupt authority and abuse of power. Policemen shooting unarmed individuals multiple times. Court systems rigged for a result rather than the truth. And yet we see this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. And we have to appreciate if they could do this to Jesus. I mean, the tragedy, Jesus, the king of all kings, standing before them, facing such injustice. If they could do this to Jesus, then his words are true, right? He said previously, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if they can hate the righteous, then what more would they do to the unrighteous? And yet Jesus was in complete control. And so as we look here, there's three things that I would highlight because there are so many things that could be said. Here we see the sovereign will of God outworked. The sovereign will of God outworked. The sovereign will of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being outworked in this moment in human history. Not that that was anything new because Jesus said that I had come to do my Father's will. And yet we see this come to its ultimate fulfillment. Most of us, I would probably dare to say that we don't like really being told what to do. Maybe under certain circumstances. But there always comes a point when our back stiffens and the bristles on the back of our neck. I have got come some kind of bristles. I, well, yeah. They kind of hackle up like a cat in anger. And we kind of feel like, I don't want to do that. And yet we see no such thing in our Savior <clears throat> as the sovereign will of God prophesied, predicted throughout the ages comes to fulfillment. We see God's unfailing love demonstrated. Even in the most simple of ways and yet most profound we see complete obedience on the part of him who is the Lamb of God. In verse 16, Pilate delivers Jesus over to the crowd by the hands of the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And here we see that actually as this whole saga has revealed there is none good, no, not one. Pilate, as being representative of the Gentile ruling power, the Roman um, rule of the day, got to the point where, for political ends merely and solely, he gave Jesus to the people. What do you want with him? Crucify him, they cried. We have no king but Caesar. Which was the greatest irony because the Jews hated the Romans. They hated Roman rule and they never acknowledged Caesar as king. And yet in their anger toward Christ, 
They even defied their own conscience and convictions. They even negated their own Jewish identity to call Caesar their king in order to pressure Pilate to crucify Christ. And so Pilate says, have it your way. Pilate knew the consequences of being seen to be one who would be in league with treason. It's interesting that crucifixion was um, the most extreme method of execution that the Romans had. And yet, a Roman citizen was forbidden to be crucified. A Roman citizen was forbidden to be crucified. The, under, the only circumstances under which a Roman citizen could be crucified is by direct command of the emperor himself. There were only rare occasions that that might be given, treason being one of them. And so as Pilate heard that, he may have sat there and thought to himself, well, it's him or me. Am I going to be found to be in league with treason? It's easier to just give them what they want, give them who they want. And even as he delivers Jesus over to the crowd at the hands of his Roman soldiers, so they were complicit, they were in agreement, they were co-conspirators, it says they took Jesus, but then John makes a, a, a statement which was really unnecessary, and he went out. And yet in that simple statement, he's underlining again the fact that Jesus went with them by his own choice. Jesus bore his own cross. Now, after being beaten by the Jewish temple police, having been beaten um, under Pilate and then scourged, because when you harmonize the gospel stories, what we see is that Pilate brings Jesus out before the people twice. He brings him out before the people. He takes him and beats him. He thinks that's going to be sufficient to satisfy them. They, they cry out again, crucify him. And normally scourging was, was such that it was only administered to one who was going to be crucified. Pastor Rob mentioned last week about the kind of notion of tenderizing the meat before cooking it. And there was this sense of this person is going to be prepared for crucifixion. Scourging was part of that process. And actually, after all that Jesus had gone through, he really ought to have died he ought to have died under the whip. He's had no sleep throughout this whole period. He's had no food. He's had no drink. He's had multiple beating upon beating to the point where he now faces this scourging with, with bones and metal laden in the whip. His flesh is torn from him. Isaiah, looking ahead into the future, said he had no form of comeliness that we should desire him. There was, on a good day, he wasn't the world's next top model. At this moment, he was repulsive to the eye. And so Jesus should have been dead. And if it weren't for the fact that it was predicted that he would die only by being hung on a tree... He probably would have been. But such was the sustaining power of God that Jesus could not die. He could not die until it was in accordance with the Father's will. And just as a word of encouragement, we do see that this is true for us as well as believers. This is true for us as believers. That the sovereign father whom we serve has appointed unto man once to die. 
There is an appointment that is had with death. And after this, the judgment. And we recognize as we walk in the will of our Father, regardless of what circumstances we face, regardless of, of what fears we may feel, the reality is we cannot die until the Father's appointment. And that's because, like Christ, we have a purpose to fulfill. None of us know when we're going to go. None of us know how we're going to go. If you were to go in the next five minutes, fire, flames pour out of these vents, none of us have time to get out of here. <laughs> Especially me. <laughs> With my, my one and a half foot. <laughs> and we were to meet our demise. To what extent would you say that you fulfilled your purpose here on earth? What has your life really been about? To what extent would you stand before Jesus with any degree of confidence or satisfaction? Now, I'm not assuming that actually there aren't some of us who would be able to say, you know what, I'm ready to meet the Lord. I haven't been perfect. I haven't done all that I've, I could have done, but I've given my all nonetheless. And where I've been wrong, I've repented and I've, and I've sought to please the Lord. And where I've been weak, I've acknowledged this and sought his grace. And I would, and I would challenge you. I mean, the reality is that with all of the health and safety regulations that we face today, there's no fire that's going to be coming through these vents. And yet we don't know. Ought we not to live with that in mind? When we look at Christ on the cross, when we look at this as the conclusion of his great life on earth, all of the disciples were disillusioned. They disappeared. This was seen to be the greatest tragedy to those who knew and loved him. And yet it was his time. It was his time to go. It was the Father's will for him to go. And he was ready. This was the hour throughout the book of John. Jesus would say, it's not my hour. The hour has not yet come. And he would refer to this hour, and this is the hour, meaning the moment of all moments. This was his time. And he was ready to face it in the will of the Father. And so they took him, and verse 18 it says they crucified him with two others on either side. And it's a very short and simple statement. And yet, it does little to describe the real depth of the experience. And actually, this isn't a strange thing because the writers of their time and uh, those who were of the literary classes, it was commonly understood that they wouldn't write about crucifixion. They wouldn't write about crucifixion. They wouldn't detail cru crucifixion. <clears throat> it was recognized to be so barbaric, so inhumane, that it was so base that those who were cultured and were into writing and reading literature, they wouldn't even describe the detail of what takes place in crucifixion. And so when people look back historically to try and find information about crucifixion and what were the practices and so on, there's very little to work with. Because it was so gross, they wouldn't even write about it. Let's reflect on what we do know. Crucifixion is such that it finds its origins as early as the Egyptian empire. 
And so there are certain records that refer to people being hung by a frame, hung by a tree. And they're sparse, but it seems to suggest the origin of the practice of crucifixion. And um, it's helpful for us to know that, because there are those today who would say, you know what, there's nothing in the gospel that's original. It's just stories that have been rewind, remixed, and rehashed, and put before us. Because the ancient Egyptians had their crucifixion accounts, and their heroes who were crucified and rose again. Well, you know, the greatest way to, to sell someone a lie is to mix it with the truth. But a half-truth is no truth at all. And there is a certain amount of truth in that, that yes, there are some sparse records within Egyptian history that make reference to crucifixion by description, but not by name. <coughs> but none of them speak of one who was crucified on behalf of his people as an innocent man, who after being dead three days, having been certified dead, was then raised from the dead, seen by over 500 people at one time, had witnesses who went forth and testified to their witnessing the resurrection even at the cost of their own lives. There's no such things in Egyptian history. And so those who say that are extrapolating on the little truth that there is. They're just expanding and, and, and inflating something to try and claim something that is not true. This, is, this ought not to surprise us. Because such is the nature of man. So having found its origins in Egypt, it became popularized amongst the Persians. And you read um, during the time of the, of the Persian Empire, um, thousands of people being um, crucified. In fact, Alexander the Great, who came and, and took over um, the, the Persians, was said to have crucified 2,000 people, 2,000 rebels, when he quelled an uprising at one point. And yet, the Romans were the ones who perfected crucifixion. And even amongst the sparse records, we understand that crucifixion was very calculated in the pain that it was um, designed to inflict. It was designed to cause death in the slowest, most painful way possible. So a person who was crucified could remain on the cross for days. Three days was common for somebody to be still on the cross, hanging there, com completely naked. You know, you see, you see pictures of um, portrayals of Christ being crucified and so on. And um, I'll use this one <clears throat> to just give a basic portrayal because the reality is that even the most gruesome picture that you've seen doesn't do justice to how Jesus would have looked on that cross. In fact, many of you would have maybe seen the Passion of the Christ. And um, I say this often at this time of year, but there were there was a pre-screening of a director's cut and some of the Calvary Chapel pastors in California went to the pre-screening. They said that um, it was much worse than the, the version that was released. In fact, there were people who were actually throwing up in the cinema as they watched the director's version and it was determined that it needed to be toned down in order to have general release. So what you saw in The Passion of the Christ was not actually even the director's attempt at more accurately portraying. That was a toned-down version of what invariably would have been a toned-down version anyway. And yet often when you see portrayals, you see um, characters and you see the Christ character portrayed with maybe like a little loincloth and so on. One of the, the pains of crucifixion was humiliation. So... The person crucified 
was crucified in the public place. It's, it's a bit like going back in the centuries in this country when they used to put people in the stocks and have them in the public square with their head and hands through the, uh, 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 like a yoke, they would call it, and they were shackled there and they couldn't get out and people would throw eggs and throw rotten food and come up and slap them and humiliate them and laugh in their face. And there is a sense of that in crucifixion in the sense that part of the pain, part of the agony was being hung before the people, in the presence of the people, even in the reach of the people. Naked. Jesus hung there completely and utterly naked. He hung there as one who was categorized as a rebel, as a treacherous criminal. It wasn't just any criminal that they put on the cross, but it was those who were found to be guilty of treason. That was his reputation. That was his identity before the people as they walked past. They may not have even realized who it was, was that was hanging there, but in their mind, huh, good, he deserved it. Traitor. There was immense stigma associated with crucifixion. And Jesus experienced it all. And yet, that was only the beginning. As somebody hung on the cross, the nails having been driven through their wrists, and so very commonly you will see pictures, as you see there, of the nails through the palms. But it, it, it doesn't take a great deal to work out that the palms are not really going to be able to bear much weight. And yet, in the Greek language, the word for hand included the area of the, the, the body up to the elbow. And so when they say the nails were driven through his hands... By use of the language, we can understand and appreciate that is able to um, genuinely include the wrist or the forearms, where there's more solid bone there, able to take the weight of the body as it hung. <clears throat> they would put the nail through the feet, often overlapping the feet, and putting it through the, the um, front of the heel, if you like. It going through the heel, going through both feet, through both heels into the cross. We're talking nine-inch nails. But even that pain wasn't really the, the catalyst for death in the crucifixion experience. One of the things that the Romans done in perfecting the, the, the pain of the cross was that they, they included a, a little um, peg or a little board, the sedicula. And it was just enough of a board sticking out from the cross. Sometimes it was, it was put at the feet, just at the heel. Sometimes it was put under the posterior, under the rear. And it was just enough of a ledge for a person to rest themselves on. Now, this wasn't an act of mercy on the part of the Romans. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to nail you to the cross. <coughs> You're going to hang there until you suffocate because asphyxiation was the main cause of death for those who were crucified. The victim would hang there until their muscles fatigued and they were unable to bear their own weight. And as they sank down, the muscles that um, enabled breathing would seize up and they'd begin to suffocate. And so in order to um, breathe again, they would need to push up in order to free those muscles, enabling the chest to move and breathing to resume. And so you had this cycle of dropping, suffocating, pushing up, breathing. And this is part of the, 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 the prolonged agony. And so when they put this little ledge on the cross, they put it there to give just enough support to help the person regain their breath so that it would take longer for them to die. 
It wasn't enough support for them to just sit there and chill. Because there came a point when it was too painful to stay there. And you had to, you know when you put your weight on something for too long, part of your body might be leaning on your hands and then you begin to get pins and needles and it gets numb. And <clears throat> Think about that to the extreme. And you have to move. You have to move. You can't stay in that position. There were occasions where somebody would be on the cross for even up to a week. During that time, they would become prey for the birds and other animals. The cross was the most gruesome means of death ever invented. Whilst they're on the cross, struggling to breathe, they would experience dehydration. They would experience starvation. And we see that it's very calculated in the way that even the, the Romans chose the areas, the points at which the person was pierced. Because Despite the fact you would think they would be, the, the person would just bleed out, they would just bleed everywhere, they would ensure that they don't hit a major artery. And so the bleeding was minimal. No vital organs were pierced. And so the pain was amplified. This is what Jesus had to endure. When the text says, and they crucified him, this is what it's talking about. Asphyxiation, shock, and fatigue were the killers of those who were crucified. Often, the Romans would, um, they would curtail the agony for one reason or another. And so they would break the legs. And at that point, there was no more support for an individual to push up and they would collapse into a heap, gasping, choking, and finally die. Within the space of 24 hours, the Lord Jesus was sentenced and executed. <clears throat> this was all according to the will of the Father. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, we understand that it was predicted the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. You see, as Jesus hung there as a criminal, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he done so in a way that was predicted 700 years before. That he would be numbered among the criminals. And this is both in a metaphoric sense in terms of his identity He'd be regarded as a criminal. But we also see that even on this occasion where there was a thief, a criminal on either side of him, pointed out by the gospel writers, that even in that, practically on the occasion, he was identified among two other criminals, numbered, just as was predicted. And so Pilate writes on the, the title plaque, the King of the Jews. The title plaque was the plaque that they would put above the head of the crucified victim, detailing their crime. 
outlining what it was that they, the, the reason for which they had been crucified. Now, when Pilate wrote on this inscription, the king of the Jews, ensuring that everybody knew Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, no matter which language, which part of the world, remember, this is Passover season, and there were people from all over the world in Jerusalem. Jesus was just outside the city. <coughs> Even that in itself, being taken outside of the city, outside of community, taken out from among the people, rejected and crucified is significant. And yet, we see that this inscription is made emphatically the king of the Jews to the point where the Jews themselves were not happy. No, no, don't, don't. Look, you need to change that. I.e., he ain't our king. You need to make people aware that this is what he claimed. By this time, Pilate weren't trying to take any more orders from the Jews. What I've written, I've written. Did Pilate write this because he believed it to be true? It's highly unlikely. What we do know is that Pilate, in writing this, was distinctly humiliating these people who, in some way or another, seemed to have got one over on him. He didn't want to crucify Jesus. He didn't want to involve himself in this petty local dispute of religious or origin. He claims to be king of the Jews, that's blasphemy. What's that got to do with me? I'm a Roman procurator. You think I'm, I'm concerned about your petty religious laws? But then when they bring Caesar's name into it, his hands are tied. Okay. You want to do it like that? All right, you know what, take him. Do what you want with him. But Pilate's not happy. And so as Pilate writes the king of the Jews, imagine this is the title that is hanging over this bleeding, battered, crucified, subjected to pain and oppression by the Romans. This is the title that's hanging over this figure. What a sight the king of the Jews was. What, 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 what a sight their king is. How great these Jews are. Look at their king. It was a mockery. It was a humiliation to the Jews and they felt it because they didn't want it to say that. And yet look at the ironic declaration of truth. And even in this, we see how God is able to declare his truth and fulfill his will even at the hands of those who oppose him. Such is God's sovereign power that he can do what he wants with whoever he wants. Even without defying and violating their free moral choice. Pilate chose to write that for his own reasons and yet in doing so fulfilled the declaration of Christ's true identity. The king of the Jews. <clears throat> in Psalm 22 and verse 18 we see a prediction that it was impossible to fabricate the fulfillment of. Psalm 22 is regarded as the, the messianic psalm. Um, and it is from this psalm, verse 1, that Jesus quoted. It's not captured here by John because this isn't in his focus. But the other gospel writers capture the cry of Christ from the cross when he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
Psalm 22 verse 1. And the whole psalm, and we'll look at it to conclude, paints the picture predicting with such clarity the crucifixion experience of the Messiah. And even in this experience, we see that it was predicted the soldiers would divide the garments among them and for his clothing cast lots. An execution guard was said to have been made up of four soldiers with one centurion. The same centurion who, after Jesus gave up his spirit, said, surely this man was the son of God. And so they were all there present, and as they were there present, they gambled for his clothes. They, they cast lots by whichever means that would have been. I dare not say that dice was invented then. Maybe it was short straws. But there was a piece of clothing that they didn't want to cut up because it was too valuable in one piece. This being his tunic. And so they chose to gamble for it. It was fairly common that if there were items of value, the soldiers would share it out amongst themselves. Maybe from time to time they may cast lots. And yet, who is there to say that it would have happened on this occasion? And the specific nature of this prediction, notice they divided my garments among them. So they had, they had shared out what was there and then still had need to go on and cast lots. Which is exactly what we see in our text. They took his garments and divided them into four parts. So each soldier of the execution guard had something already. And yet there was still a need to cast lots. This is such a specific fulfillment of prophecy. That it has an outrageously statistical um, chance of being fulfilled in this manner. And yet we see the sovereign will of God being fulfilled. <clears throat> Let us not lose sight considering all of this blood and guts and pain and agony the real heart and motive. Somewhat reflected as Jesus speaks to the beloved disciple who is noted to be John who is writing this gospel and Mary, his mother, as they stand there. It was common for those who were associated with the crucified to actually come out and gather around the cross and as they stood there, Jesus spoke to his mother and directed her attention to John the disciple, saying, this now is your son. And to the disciple, this now is your mother. Was Jesus doing this to, in some way, draw attention to Mary? Was he doing this to help people appreciate in time to come that she is just another disciple, just like John and the other disciples? He didn't give her any specific prominence. He didn't exalt her. He didn't big her up in any way. Especially not in the way that we see often done in certain religious circles. We don't know if this was his motive. We don't know if we had this, he had this in mind, although we note that he didn't do that. But what we do know is that Jesus was taking care of her future welfare. They didn't have social security. They didn't have benefit system in the way that we have. And as parents got into their aged years, they would be reliant on their children to provide for them. 
And if you will remember, you will note that Jesus has got brothers. We don't know if it was by a second marriage or if it was by Joseph before he died. But his brothers are not there. You notice that. You ever been in one of those situations when you're in hardship and you expect certain people to be around and they're not there? Jesus understands. He knows how you feel. Because even his own brothers were not there. They were unbelievers. At the festival of lights in John 7, they said, look, why don't you go down and show yourself? Come on, big man. Go and show the people what you're made of. Expecting that he's going to be working on their time frame. According to their motivation. <clears throat> it's interesting because we don't know to what extent they weren't about. But for Jesus to commit his mother into John's care was to suggest that there would be an ongoing relationship by which John would take responsibility. And what a blessing that he had a disciple such as John to look to in that moment. I mean, Peter, Lord, I died for you. Let's go. They want to take you to the cross. I'll never let it happen. Peter's denied him three times and has disappeared. Let us not think it's strange when people fail us, especially in our time of need. But you know what? The Lord provides. And just as the Lord provided John for Jesus, he has provided Jesus for us because Jesus will never fail us. He'll never forsake us. The psalmist said that the Lord is a very present help in our time of trouble. We see Jesus fulfilling righteousness to the very end. He's hanging on the cross and yet still is in control. He's not there begging and crying to be let down. He's not there crying for his life. He's not there overwhelmed and consumed with pain to the point where he's lost his senses. He's very conscious. He's very cognizant. As he takes care of the welfare of his mum. And we see love in this. We see an unfailing love. The love spoken of in John 3, 16. That love that so loved the world that whoever might believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And as we appreciate the context of John 3.16 and the fact that in the verses prior it had spoken of Christ being lifted up like the snake on the pole in the wilderness. We see that even in this moment, there is a clear reflection of the fulfillment of those verses. Jesus being hung on a pole, bearing the sins of the world, taking the judgment of the Father upon himself for us. And yet, not being resentful, not being bitter, not crying his innocence, still thinking of others. If there was anyone who had a right to claim the victim, don't you know that I shouldn't be hanging here? Don't you know I shouldn't be feeling this pain? Don't you understand that I've done nothing wrong? It puts us to shame with our, our victim mentality. Any little thing, we, we want to cry the victim. It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault. Look what they've done to me. And yet he who had every right to cry the victim was thinking of others. And him thinking about his mum is just a mere reflection of how he actually was thinking of us as he died on the cross in our place. And so after this, Jesus takes a drink. And it's important to note that this drink that Jesus takes of sour wine was not a drink 
that was um, often administered to people on the cross. Often people on the cross were given um, myrrh mixed with wine as an anesthetic. As a, as a, as it was like liquid neurofen. It was a pain reliever. But Jesus refused that when they offered it to him. Because he knew that he must drink the cup of the Father fully, experiencing everything. That there was no lack in his sacrifice on our behalf. And yet, he took this in fulfillment of what was written. And commentators suggest that actually the scripture that he was fulfilling and that which he had in view was Psalm 69 and verse 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This may well have been intentional on Christ's part, asking for a drink at this point, knowing that he would be given sour wine common to that of the soldiers. But that's okay, because he's demonstrating his complete and utter obedience to the will of the Father, to that which was prophesied concerning the Messiah, to the point where he could then cry, it is finished, it is complete. In other words, mission accomplished. To do the will of the Father, even to the point of death, was Christ's mission. Such was it predicted and such was it fulfilled. And then Jesus gave up his spirit. And this was unheard of. I mean, it's a mystery. How does one even give up their spirit? Jesus had such control, not just of the situation, but even of his own life, that he could choose to depart when he was ready. Could anyone deny that this is truly God in the flesh? And so we see that Jesus completed the mission in which he secured our forgiveness, reconciling all who would believe to God the Father through the substitutionary sacrifice, the propitiatory Propitiation. <laughs> That's a dangerous word, you know. <laughs> that was made through his blood. His life given, satisfying the demands of the Father in our place. Redeeming us, setting us free. Sanctifying us. Having justified us through his blood. The New Testament goes on to expound on the work that has been finished. The New Testament goes on to speak of all these things. The apostles and the writers of the epistles, they tell us all that Jesus accomplished. In this one instance, in this one moment, in this three hours on the cross, Jesus taken the wrath of the Father accomplished so much in fulfilling obediently the Father's will and revealing his love. So the scripture says to us, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and, and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the tragedy that was the crucifixion of the King of Kings was also the glorious means by which he was exalted. Demonstrating complete and utter love, selflessness, sacrifice, and obedience to the Father. And so, what was a tragedy to some is glorious to all who believe. And everyone will recognize that. Either now by choice or later under duress. Let's stand as we conclude. It is such that all of us need to reflect all of us need to reflect on exactly what this means to us because as we look back at this it's easy to dismiss it as a story of ancient history and yet The Bible calls us to believe, to have faith. And faith isn't something that's unique to Christianity. It's not even unique to religion. But everybody exercises faith every day of their lives. And so whatever convictions you hold concerning how we got here, you do so by faith. Because neither you nor anyone else was there at the beginning to say how we got here. No one can ultimately dispute The fact we were created because nobody can go back in time to prove it. So people look at what they claim to be evidence and they make interpretations of that. And they put trust in those interpretations. And then they promote those interpretations in the hope that other people will trust them. But you have a choice whether to trust it or not. And here we have the account of an individual a Jew crucified at the hands of the Romans, an event that was catalogued by other historians in addition to those who wrote the Gospels. This wasn't a a secret event. This wasn't something that was done behind closed doors that nobody was aware of. This was something that was done in the open. And so if we know anything about history, if we believe anything about history, we cannot disbelieve this. Historians would say that the crucifixion of Christ is one of the most well-documented, if not the most well-documented event of history. So what do you know about history? What do you believe about history? So what? Why would you believe it? Why would you believe it over the account of Christ's death on your behalf? And so, as we reflect on the cross of Christ, I wish that you would take into account and consider that it should have been you. It should have been you on that cross experiencing that pain. It should have been you experiencing the agony, the humiliation. It should have been you experiencing the wrath of the Father. Father God, we come before you in the name of the Lord and we 
ask you to forgive us for taking for granted your provision of freedom through Jesus. Your provision of ultimate love. Forgive us for taking it for granted. Help us to appreciate and understand afresh as we enter into this season known as Easter, Passover season where your people throughout the world continue to remember your crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. Lord Jesus, may it be real to us, so real that it causes us to actually change the way we view ourselves and change the way that we view you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place as our substitute. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the shame and the agony, for taking all that pain, Lord, that humiliation, for taking the punishment that we deserved, paying the penalty for our sin. Thank you, Jesus. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.